0: welcome to the finding gravitas podcast brought to you by gravitas detroit looking to become a more authentic leader finding gravitas is the podcast for you gravitas is the ultimate leadership quality that draws people in it's an irresistible force encompassing all the traits of authentic leadership join your podcast host jan Griffiths, that passionate rebellious farmer's daughter from wales entrepreneur, leadership coach, keynote speaker, one of the top 100 leading women in the automotive industry, as she interviews some of the finest leadership minds in the quest for Gravitas.
1: We're ready to continue our quest to find Gravitas through the path of authentic leadership. Authentic leadership can sometimes show up in the most unexpected place. How about the mind of a 21-year-old CEO? That's right, a Gen Z CEO. Move over, millennials, because Gen Z is coming right on through. They are right on your heels and they are ready to go. And if this man is anything to go by, I am thrilled with what the future may hold for us. If he is an example of what Gen Z leadership is all about, then the future is indeed bright. In this episode, you'll meet Michael Chime, CEO of Prepared, student at Yale University, and a man who follows his purpose and passion. He has defied conventional wisdom twice already in his life. He's on a mission— to put safety in the hands of everyone in the world. And you'll hear all about that story. Please welcome to the show, Michael Chime.
2: Hey Jan, it's great to be here.
1: So, Michael, 21 years of age, CEO. What's your story?
2: Yeah, so um I'd break down me into to two categories. I'd say there's there's an athletic realm, and then there's this also this budding business realm that I'm I'm diving into now. I think it's also predicated on a strong foundation I, uh, I grew up in Cleveland Ohio I um, had a, a great family foundation of of people that were really supportive and um, saw a firsthand example of what hard work looks like so my mom and dad worked for everything that they had and then that everything they had they then gave to us kids growing up they were great examples for me and then you know moving into um, my later years in, in high school I, I went to an all boys Catholic Jesuit high school. A very different experience from what maybe you see on TV in high school and what that is like. Played football there, had the opportunity to go and continue that football and my um, academic pursuits at Yale, which I'm, I'm studying there now. At Yale, I got really interested in, in an issue that I've been passionate about since I was, was a kid. And with a, a team of other Yale students, professors, and alumni, started a company that you know is, we're really excited about.
1: That's great. So let's talk a little bit more about where you're from. Tell me about the town that you're from. What was it like?
2: I, we moved around a decent amount as I was a kid. It was I started off in a really, really small town, and it was a town that kind of spurred my interest in the issue that I'm in today. It was a town that saw an emergency event firsthand, which I'm sure I'll, I'll talk about. It was a very tight-knit community that we ended up moving from, and then I, I went away from that tight-knit community to go to high school downtown in downtown Cleveland and, and right in Ohio City, more of the hustle and bustle. And I grew up in the small town and then moved to some more uh, downtown areas and, and got to feel what that was like my entire high school experience. Yeah, that was that was me growing up.
1: What was the name of the town? Can you share the name of the town?
2: Yeah, it was Chardon, Ohio is where okay. I grew up. Yeah, Chardon, okay.
1: Ohio. Okay, great. And what did your parents do? I'm, I'm curious to know what they did to influence such, you know, such... A young, <laughs> incredible superstar. So tell me, you know, what, what did your parents do?
2: They are superstars in their own right. Um, so my mom works for a company called Alaris. It's a metals company. Funny story behind that is that the company my great-grandpa started, which was also a metals company, actually ended up being acquired by Alaris. The company that my, my great-grandpa worked for and started and, and worked to build, it was called Walbash Alloys, which is a metal company itself. Was ultimately acquired by the company my mom now works for today, which is Alaris International. It's a metals company that is based out of Beechwood here in Ohio. And then my dad is in the, the same industry as well. He's a metals broker and trades scrap metal and helps companies with logistics of transporting that metal. He owns his own company. It's called Global Foundry Solutions. And both of them have been in that industry since they were kids. That's something that they've worked on their entire life. And like I said, that foundation of, of working for everything you have is something I got to see firsthand.
1: Was there an expectation that you should go into the family business, so to speak, into metals?
2: I don't think so. I, I think that they, they um, were passionate about it, but I don't think by any means they wanted me to go into it. Uh, it, was, it was more out of necessity, right? They, they didn't have much as kids and they, um, they wanted better. So they, they worked right away and to try to help support the family. And they, they actually had a funny story. so they grew up on a similar block, a block that was like right next to each other as kids. This was when my mom was really young, my dad was really young, and they didn't know each other until later in life, whether it was like 20s or or early 30s. I guess maybe that town just breeds metals, and I guess I didn't grow up there, so I didn't get to be part
1: of that. Yeah, it's funny, uh, you know, I grew up uh, on a farm in Wales, and my parents really didn't want me to go into farming. They wanted me to do something better or something different. You know, they didn't see that there was money in it, so they wanted me to do something different.
2: Yeah, I feel that really strongly. I think that my parents were were similar in that sense, in that they were very grateful for the opportunities they had, right? to to My dad started his own business now, and it's something that he's worked on, but by no means did I think that they want me to go into metals. <laughs> I think that they were, were happy with the path that I've gone on so far.
1: So let's talk about school and football. Now, as you know from our early conversations, I am certainly no expert (laughs) on football and American sport. Um, So be gentle with me as we work through this part of the conversation. But I am very interested in your passion and your drive to succeed in football. So tell us a little bit about that. And let's get inside your head as to to what was driving that passion.
2: Absolutely. This is something I would love to talk about sports in general, and I'll go and break it down into football later in life, was something that was vital to who I became or who I am right now as a person. I I think my my mom says my first word was ball. From a very early age, I started playing football and was interested in the sport. I, I started flag football. Here in America, they start young. So I started playing at four years old, playing flag football with my friends in an organized league, And growing up playing basketball, baseball, I wrestled, whatever sport uh, there was to play, I played it. And it was lucky because I was bigger than most of the other kids, so I could take advantage of that. Growing up, that was definitely a passion of mine, and it stayed with me in in middle school and then high school is where I started to really specialize. So I started to focus on sports like football and wrestling and, and high contact sports and also doing track and field. Those were my focus, but always my my love was football. And it influenced my decision to go to that Catholic all-boys high school downtown. They were known as maybe the powerhouse in downtown Cleveland for football. Went there with a lot of expectations. There was a lot of great players that had played there in the past, and I knew there was a lot of great players at the school currently. And I think that at a high school like that, and, and just to speak, my senior year, we were 12th in the country by the end of the year, and we didn't even win the state championship. We weren't even the best team in the state but we're rated 12 in the country. At a school like that, with just a lot of talent, there's, there's a wait your turn mentality. And I think that, while that's a, a good thing, is that it teaches you somewhat respect and, 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 and work for what you, what you get. At the same time, it can be a passive approach too. And you start to take a backseat and be like, oh, well, it's his turn. And maybe even if you're better, you, you let that um, drive your thoughts and then some of your actions. So me, as, as someone who's, had all these high expectations of, of playing football at the next level, going to college and continuing that passion that I had since I was a little kid. It didn't work out that way in the beginning. So I, I move into my, my junior year of high school and uh, I'll educate you a little bit on college recruiting processes. If you don't have offers by your junior year of high school, most people will tell you you basically kiss that dream goodbye because that's something that rosters are filled up. The offers that they're giving are out it's a point in my life where I'm at my junior year and there was better players in front of me. One went to Ohio state and did really well there. And I had to make a choice on like, what was going to be my focus for this next year? And because this next year was going to be vital in, in what I ultimately did. I looked around and there was a lot of people, coaches from other schools, mentors in the past, family members, people who said, you know, you're a smart kid. I was doing well in school, had high GPA, had good ACT and, they said, why don't you just focus on that and have a really strong end of your junior year, have a great senior year and go to a great college and you'll, you'll be one of the first in the family to do so, go to college, right? In the beginning, that sounded enticing, right? Like that was something that sounded really good. I could be the the one in the family that, that went to college and did those things. And I think that ultimately, though, at my junior year, that was a, a point in my life where I had to make a Decision that I feel like I'm at a similar point today where there was a lot of people that said, you know Maybe this isn't the best move, but when I talked about football and playing football in college uh, My the hairs on my arms stood up. I got goosebumps when I would tell people about that dream of playing college football Of being on that big stage and, and making those plays that I had dreamt about since I was a kid That was something that excited me in my core and I wasn't ready to give it up yet so I acknowledge that I think that at that point there was a bit of delusion in that decision, right? Like a lot of people would have said, you know, that's not the best decision for you. The, the odds are really low. The odds of going and playing college football in general are really low, but the excitement and the passion in that dream, since I was a little kid drove me to continue to pursue it. And, so you and, had to
1: choose between focusing on academics or focusing yeah. on football?
2: <laughs> I think my parents and people would say I could have done both, but I think one thing that's, I pride myself in which is a curse at the same time is i'm like a hundred percent in something person and um while i can do other things in multitask is that my passion and my energy and, and when i get really excited about something it's very hard to divert me from that path and at that moment in time it was football i mean i could do well in school and it would be the side but i could have done a lot better in school if football was not in this equation and um that was that was the decision at that point. Was I gonna put all my resources mentally in in school or was I gonna put it in football and see what happened senior year just rolled the dice on a dream that I knew in me was was what I wanted to pursue. And that's what'd what you I did. do? What'd you yeah, do? Tell us yeah, so <laughs> what is out <that> of suspense. <laughs> oh yeah, no. So here, so I think I made a decision to go after football. And it was the right decision in in hindsight. I um, we had a tremendously great senior year. And it was a great team of guys that went on to go to the state championship in Division One football in Ohio, which is the hardest division in Ohio and one of the hardest states for American football. And we ended up playing at Ohio State Stadium in front of thousands of people in the stadium I would grown up idolizing as a kid. And I was lucky enough to had watched enough film to see a few plays maybe before they happened and was able to make some plays in that game, score a touchdown, have a few sacks after that game was presented with the opportunity to go to a couple college and play football, which is why I ended up playing football to start at Yale and um, having a few other opportunities to go play college football. But I bet on myself and the bet was right.
1: Let's go one level deeper on that, because I know we were talking uh, in the earlier discussion as we get ready for the recording. So you were not you were not supposed to be the guy that was picked.
2: No. So by no means was the coaches that were Attending that game, or the coaches that were watching film from that game looking for me to have a great game they they were there to see the juniors, the ones that I told you about and um, there was a play that I remember vividly like it was yesterday uh there, there was a play where they there was their first punt of their game, and the punt is just where that they kick it to the other team, change of possession and the The play was designed so that I block uh, the person in front of me but I had watched a f- that, that play on film a few times. It was in my head a few times, manifested it. And um, I saw the center, the guy I was supposed to block, stepping to the left. And that would give me a huge opening to break right through. And God hope I was right, because if not, I was going to get benched and the coaches were going to be very upset because I was making the wrong play. But I, I went with my gut, with what I had seen on film, broke through the line, blocked the punt, uh, was able to, to pounce on it and score the first touchdown of the game. And defensive tackles don't score very many touchdowns. That's not our job by any means. I ended up only scoring two my entire career at Ignatius. So that was one of the two. And, um, yeah, that play definitely was a game changer, a life changer for me. And I ended up being uh, one of the players of the game, being interviewed after the game by the ESPNs at at the Ohio State game and stuff like that,
1: yeah. That's phenomenal. Now, I have to imagine that the coach – could take it one of two ways, right? I mean, either they're looking at that as, wow, that was a gutsy move, right? And we're we're proud that you, you did that. Or they could look at it and say, that's not what you were supposed to do. We don't want this sort of rebel spirit in a team. So how did they interpret that move?
2: We've talked about it since, actually. We talked about it a few weeks ago. I have a great relationship with my coaches. They've been uh, role models for me, impactful figures in my life. And They were very happy I made that decision. Um, I think that like any great leader, our our coaches understood that we were the people on the field and that to a certain extent they had to trust us to make decisions and, and do things that maybe went outside what they had preached all the time and what was the status quo. And in that moment, and I think that another part of this is that I had to earn that trust. Over the the entire year, I had done things the right way, been a model for other kids and stayed after practice with the younger kids to make sure that they were moving in the right direction. And in that moment, I think that they trusted me to make a play and to do the right thing. And And it wasn't out of just spur of the moment. I had prepared for that moment. I had seen that multiple times on film. I had voiced it to them on film that, you know, maybe this is something that I might do if I see it. And while that call in that specific time was to drop back, I think they were very excited and the fact that I had prepared and, and done the right thing in that moment.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. You've mentioned several times that you'd seen that play. Yeah. You know, you've you've seen it. I know you've seen actual recordings of it, but you've visualized it in your head. And all of the research that I've done and many of the leaders that I have interviewed, um, particularly uh, Nick Norris and Navy SEAL, we yeah. we had a long discussion about this, about the power of visualization. Right. And in the Navy SEAL world, they have the the sand table. They talk about where they lay out the mission and they talk about what could go wrong, but it really creates a powerful visual. And I love that film, In Search of Greatness, and particularly when they talk about Wayne uh, Gretzky, when he talks about, you know, he sees it. He sees the, he sees the play. He sees Absolutely. it in his, in his mind. And, and he, he, um, Tiger Woods always, they feel the, the winning shot. They know it. They feel it in every fiber of their being. Yep. How much of that visualization process plays into who you are and how it's guided you so far in your life?
2: I think it's been a huge factor in, in any success that I've had so far. Um, I think that in sports, it's something that's really important. I think that, and it's tied directly into preparation. So like, not only had I seen that play multiple times, but I had watched that pass play multiple times on film. And um, I think that you, in sports, this taught me this lesson, but I think that you, you win a battle twice. I don't think that you win it once. I think that actually, if you don't win the first battle, you're not going to win the second one. And that battle is first in your head. Uh, if you don't win that that battle and and I won that battle I'd seen that happen multiple times I'd seen that play I had felt it to a certain extent the the ball touching my hands as I had blocked it and um that battle when I stepped on the field was already won I just had to recreate it in in real life and manifest it and um that's yeah that's something that I think is when you're confident with the preparation that you've put in over a lot of times and you've you've felt that in your core that's that's something that can be really powerful. And I believe that it's been integral in my success.
1: There is power yeah. behind visualization. There's no question. You know it, you felt it, you've been there, you've done it. As you try to bring that into the business world, I will share with you that in my career and in many of the companies that I've dealt with, Somehow we lose sight of that magic, this power of visualizing success, of really talking about it, seeing it, feeling it, feeling that ball touch your hands. The same thing in business, feeling the success. We don't spend a lot of time doing that. Therefore, it's much harder to build up to that success when you haven't actually been there in your mind. How do you see yourself taking that into the business world?
2: Yeah, I think that that's actually a challenging thing to do. I think the one thing that football or, or sports give you as an advantage is that there's these really impactful moments that you can recognize and schedule for for an entire week or entire a, a off season. So, so if you look at sports, it's we had 15 opportunities to to show what we'd been working for for the entire year, and and then that's really easy. A, a definitely an easy situation to think a lot about to manifest behavior, to, to do immense amount of preparation, um, for, for one game or 15 games or whatever that is. And I think that in the business world that that's not something that's just natural, right? Like you have meetings back to back to back to back and all of those decisions could be extremely important decisions and, and what you ultimately do. And you have a lot of people that are coming in, coming to you that are unexpected that maybe you didn't plan in your day, but that, that happens that day. And, um, I think that to a certain extent, you have to plan that preparation and that mental focus into your day. And, and I, I believe that you have to take control of your day and, and to a certain extent, um, because if you don't, it'll it'll take control of you. And so, so what I've done that I think that works for me is that if I have something really, really big, like for example, if we have a huge pitch or if we have an investor meeting or something that's really going to impact the company, I try to take some time just to plan in and and visualize that event and I think that if you don't you don't take that time in and it's easy not to right you're just so busy you have so much going on and there's family and there's there's trying to grow or reading and all these things outside of work that you want to do and exercising and all those different things but I think you have to take time to just plan uh, visualize it and put that into your day because if not um, you're not getting that opportunity otherwise
1: yeah well said so let's talk about Yale. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> do it. So you go from Ohio do. to Yale. Tell us about that process. In uh, let's, let's stay with football for a moment. Okay. So Yale and football. Let's talk about that.
2: Very different, actually. So what, what the intuitive thing, well, what you would think would happen is that naturally high school football to college football would be this ginormous jump. And I think that physically it was like the players were much better than what I had played in high school, but there's definitely differences. And especially when you're going to an Ivy league school. And I knew a lot of that going into it. Like at my high school football was everything, right? Like you, you had these massive student sections. You had, um, we had multiple thousands of people at, at a state championship high school football game and there was multiple people there. And that transitioned from that, where it was like, this is the epicenter and, Byproduct, you're the epicenter. A lot of these players are becoming celebrities in those little communities. To going to Yale, where the the focus is very much academics, and there's so many talented people in so many different spheres, and they're used to being the epicenter of whatever sphere that is. Um, football is not that, you know. So that they, they have their own worlds, which are incredible worlds, and they're doing incredible things and impacting the world in their various ways. But it was a transition for for sure to go to being the center of a community and of a town and, um, to, to not being the center of really, really anything over, you know? So, uh, that was definitely a transition, but I think that just the physical part of it, the players were so much better. And I think that the time that I spent with them was definitely transformative.
1: So let's, uh, let's move and talk about your business. Let's talk about the product and, uh, right from the very beginning, right? When you started with the idea for the product and let's, take us up to uh, being in the position you're in today, which is CEO of a company. Cool. Um,
2: yes, yeah, so I would say that from the beginning, I talked to you about my, my life breaks down into these two spheres. And I think that they, are, they have their um, connections, but they also were happening very much at the same time. And from a very early age, I was passionate about the school emergency issue, school shootings, something that impacted my, my town. So I said I grew up in Chardon, Ohio. In 2012, there was a school shooting in Chardon, Ohio. Um, and in my town actually was like right next to it. It was concord, Ohio, but that's much smaller than Chardon. But Chardon, like my my grade school actually locked down when the shardin shooting happened And um, there was three fatalities in that event. So it was like really jarring for a small community And you know news media comes in for the week or two weeks post that event But I saw how it impacted that community for months after um, or even years after so as i'm growing up, I I had this in my back pocket this um, experience of what that was like for a community. And when Parkland happened, I really resonated with that as well because it it was, I was in high school when that was happening and they were in high school. Like that was my age. This is my generation that was going through this issue. Like I felt like I was going side by side because it could happen to my school any day. And um, I think that when I got to college, I became really interested in the issue and maybe how I could do something to help. And I also found two people who are incredible, two founders that started the company with me, who also grew up in Connecticut and were right by Sandy Hook when it happened. So those couple events impacted us, and I think that we rallied around finding a solution to that. So we asked ourselves a couple questions like, you know, what are happening? what is happening in these events? You know, why are there so many fatalities? And then with our current stature, what could we do about it? And I think that we were lucky enough to be at the intersection of execution and high technical skills, So I had been a part of high-performance teams. I think of myself as somewhat creative, but they also had these, they had been programming since they were 11 years old. So this was just ingrained in what they do. Actually, one of my co-founders, when he was 11, just threw an app on the App Store and got a cease and desist from Atari because it was so popular. Like that's the kind of, that's what they've been doing their whole life. And um, so we had this intersection of talent and passion for the issue and we started putting together ideas. And what we noticed from very beginning about this issue is that some of the fatalities were occurring because of simple communication issues. Like just because schools were using old age systems like PA systems and walkie talkies to communicate in a, in a situation where it it requires instant communication and those systems were not built for instant communication. And you saw it in Parkland. It took them three minutes and 30 seconds to even lock down the school to send a simple code red communication to everyone on site. And the emergency itself was just over six. So for the majority of that emergency, your people internally are scrambling, trying to get more information. And that's why you see the majority of the fatalities are on the first floor, because by the time you got to the second floor, they'd locked down. So we saw really early on that if we could just solve the communication issue, we could do a lot of good. And um, that was something that we wanted to tell the world about. You know, we, we saw like we, we could do something here. So we built this very simple communication tool that at the press of a button, you can now communicate to everyone. We showed it to a few schools and they were really excited about it. So um, from the very beginning, we had paying schools that were adopting the solution that that wanted to be part of this whole process of building something to solve this problem. And um, from there, we started pitching it to more schools, talking to more relationships, and continuing to iterate the product based on that feedback. And then we we started to develop products, which we're still doing today, for, for police departments. And that's really the next stage of our growth. So we... It, it was funny, every time we had talked to a school about the topic of safety, naturally that local police chief was brought into the discussion. Those two uh, sides are just so closely tied on this issue. And because of that, police departments would tell us, you know, you, you have all this great info, right? We'd love to take it, but think about the systems we're using, right? Like the systems we have are old age systems built for a phone call. Uh, you have in a mass emergency like this, you have 30 calls, 40 calls, 50 calls all coming in at once. We can't synthesize that type of information. And that was our next thought. It's like, okay, well, we'll build you one. And, and, and that's what we ended up doing. So we built them a system that allowed them to see an emergency heat map in real time. They could see the building schematics. They could see where people were, what they were pressing, if they were safe or not. Um, and they could synthesize all this info at the same rate that they could take one phone call. They can now parse through 15, 30 messages. Um, So, we built that for police and and connected it with schools, and that's really where we are today. So, we're excited about some of the people that are excited about our solution, like the former head of Chicago Police Department just joined on as an advisor. We're discussing mass implementation of our police product product in all the 911 systems nationwide. So, um, we've made some great progress, and I hope, hopefully, we've done a lot of good.
1: So, you're the CEO of this company with this incredible product. You're a student at Yale, and you're playing football. Is that correct?
2: No, Jen, so this <laughs> I I am I am a student. I am CEO, but I, I stopped playing football just this last year. made Made that deci- the hardest decision of my entire life. Um, and, and it's just a break right now. But I think coaches and my teammates understand that I'm just gonna take a break for a little bit and pursue what seems like a great opportunity um, to do some good. And it's in, at the intersection of learning how to grow something and, and build with the team, but do, do some good for the world, so I've taken a break from that, but yeah, still school' still um, developing this, yes very much
1: but now you're passionate about the the product and the cause and absolutely. the solution because it is a solution to a very real problem
2: yeah absolutely um yeah, and that's and that's why I said very early on when we were talking about football is that I think I'm at a similar point to I was my junior year is right like i right now in to a lot of people it would seem like you know Yale student, Ivy League student. And why don't you just focus on that? Get the best grades, get the best job. It's a lot of security in that. And um, I think that what I have always turned to and what I turned to in my junior year in, in high school was that passion, right? Like when I talk about prepared and what I think that we can do for the world, my hair stands up again. It's that same feeling I felt my junior year when Naysayer said, you couldn't go play football in college. I know that the percentages are low, that we're going to be the solution that that changes the world. But I I get so excited and so passionate talking about it that it's too much. I would be much more upset if I was 80 years old and didn't do this. And I, I guess I would regret it. And
1: um, Absolutely. Yeah.
2: So I think, yeah, I'm at a, at a similar intersection where, you know, the, it seems like the likely path is just continue with school, get the good grades. But um, I can't turn down the goosebumps, jam. You know, it's something I, I'm so excited about.
1: What you're talking about is being truly authentic, right? And you are living your life aligned with your values and your purpose and what you believe in. And for so many people, it's very hard to do that. And you had to make a conscious decision to go against what most people would do, should do, what people told you you probably ought to do. And you had to make a decision to follow your gut deep down inside twice now. Absolutely, yeah twice now in your life and you're 21. So that's going to happen again and again and again. But do you find it's like a muscle? You know, you sort of, once you do it once, you get you get stronger, you give you permission to go with your gut and it gets easier?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I definitely feel like that. And I think I talked to you about this earlier, was that like, if, I don't know if I had, if I didn't have that experience with football and would have made that decision, if I would have made a similar one now. Um, I think that it was really important that i had seen that roadmap before and what it had produced for me. And the other thing is, is that I don't want success of, of this to be the outcome. That, that doesn't, that's not what it has to be. Like, I would be okay with failing, but I wouldn't be okay with not trying it because of that passion and, and what, um, how much it excites me, right? So, yeah, I think that seeing it before and seeing success also with it, but just also seeing how happy I was chasing and pursuing it. Like, that was just as much fun for me as the actual getting it, that, that final college offer. To some extent, like, it was more fun chasing it. So, um, yeah, so I think that seeing that roadmap, seeing what it looked like, the how the joy I felt chasing that, that childhood dream is something that I lean on now, today, is doing it for the second time.
1: I would imagine that Yale would provide some level of support to a budding entrepreneur. Uh, how does that work?
2: Yeah, they've done some. So we've gotten 40K in grant funding from Yale so far. Um, it was through, we won the top tech startup at Yale in 2019. Um, which was a $25,000 grant. And then we were part of the Sci City Accelerator, which uh, I don't know if you know, Joseph Psy is now the um, founder. I mean, not the founder. He's the, the president of and the owner of the Nets, the, the basketball team over here. So he, he started an entrepreneurship clinic at Yale and an accelerator, and we were part of that. So we got uh, grant funding from that, but also a tremendous amount of resources at our disposal, which we try to utilize as much as we can, like the Yale Law School, they have an entrepreneurship clinic that does all of our legal work for free. And then also just a, a tremendous amount of people that are willing to support, especially because of the cause that and then the mission that we're trying to solve. So, yeah, definitely Yale's been helpful.
1: I love the way when you talk about winning the uh, 2019, what was the name of the competition at Yale that you won? It
2: was to- top top startup. Tech Startup, yeah.
1: Top Tech Startup. Yeah. So you win the top tech startup in 2019 in Yale, which is a major, major accomplishment, but you just, the way you talk about it, you just breeze by it as if, (laughs) yeah, well, we won this and then we did this and we did that, you know, I love, I love how that, the sort of the the ego, there's no real ego there to you. That's all about, you know, Hey, we did this and we're great. It's, it really is with you. It's all about the mission. You know, it's all about, I am driven to do this. This is going to happen.
2: Yeah. I think those things are nice as validators of, of what you're doing. But by no means are they the full story. I think that, um, and also they're external validators. Like internally, I've already validated this, I, and I told you about it. And some of it's intangible things. Like I just know what we're doing is a really good thing, and it's something that I should pursue because it gets me so excited talking about it. And seeing those some of those things are nice because by no means is this easy, right? Like pursuing something as a twenty-one-year-old and then also going to school is is a tough gig, but. Um, I, I validated it internally. So yeah, those, those external validators don't, don't mean that much to me. I mean, they're cool and I definitely will take them. And I think it shows not only the work that I put in, but our team has put in, but, um, at the same time, yeah, it's all mission. This is, uh, uh, some, it's a problem that fundamentally needs to be solved. And I think that we are the right people to solve it.
1: Yeah. Mm. Oh, there's no doubt in my mind that you're going to do it. Absolutely. No doubt at I all. <laughs> you're a Gen Z CEO. It's so a lot of discussion these days mm-hmm. about millennials. Millennials are getting old. Right. <laughs> so you're a Gen Z guy.
2: Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, right.
1: So as a CEO, your company is still new. It's still starting. Yeah. You said 11 employees already?
2: Yeah, so most of them are interns somewhere, but they, they come from different schools. But yeah, yeah. So
1: Okay. So you're, you're building this company before you know it. You're going to go through a period of tremendous growth. Yep. Um, Knowing that you... I've truly embraced the power of visualization. What do you see your company culture to be in the future? If you are to sit back right. maybe 10 years from now and say, you know what, this is a culture that I want and I've built in this company and this is what I believe in and I am not going to sacrifice it for anything. Describe that culture. What's it going to feel like to work in your company in the future?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is something that's different than maybe the cultures of the past, but I hope it's fun. Yeah. And I I hope that people enjoy going to work and are excited about what we're doing. And I think that to create a culture in that way, well, one, I I have to be myself and I hope that I'm fun. But uh, if not, I I hope that the, the, the mission drives people. What we're pursuing is we're trying to build better communication during emergencies for both schools and police. And that's something that would help a lot of people in the world. And I think that ultimately going each day and, and solving a problem that maybe doesn't just make people money, right, or, or doesn't solve something really niche, but like actually could save lives is a really exciting and fun thing to go work for. So I, if, if I had to say one word, I would say I, I would, a combination, I would say two, actually, I'd say I hope it's fun, but I hope it's fun because you're really passionate about what we're building.
1: And how are you going to make sure that you hire those kinds of people into your organization? How do you know that they share the same values that you do? Any thoughts around that?
2: Yeah, I think that that's something that we're working through now, as we just went through our our first hires. Um, I think that culture in general models the founders, right? In in the very early days, it's like, it's a flat hierarchy. You're, You're talking to these people every day. And that Um, we need to be real models of a successful culture before we can expect anyone else to be that model. And and I think we try to find people who are diverse in thought, but similar in morals. Um, So I think that that's what we're looking for ultimately is people that share commonly our, our values, our mission, our morals, things that we hold dear about the way in which people should not only attack each day, but treat each other. And then the other thing is, is that we want people that are different and better than us at things that we are not good at right? So we're looking for people that can inspire us in a category that we know way less than they do. Like, I I don't know a ton about marketing, right? So that, that, And we we just had someone join our team who's an expert in marketing. Like that person, we have something in common, which is like, we believe that this issue should be solved. We believe that people should be treated a certain way. We believe that uh, communication is key. Like we have a lot of similarities, but at the same time, they think about marketing totally different than I ever will. And I hope to learn a lot from them, but that's inspiring, right? So I, I want to hire people that have commonalities in places where it matters, but also are very different in skill set and, and thought.
1: What about hiring multi generational uh, people? Yeah. Uh, and I'm not looking for a job, honestly. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> But I, there's, you know, there's, I interviewed uh, John Anderson um, the other day, and he was the very first Gazelle's business coach, extremely reputable, knowledgeable guy. Yeah. And he's written a book called Replace Retirement. Mm. And he's basically saying to baby boomers and maybe Gen Xs that are now retiring, you know, there's an opportunity for you to play in this up-and-coming workforce, right. albeit the bottom end of the millennial scale or the Gen Z scale, but to come in and not work necessarily work full time, but to come in maybe in a gig economy type of yeah. environment or this different talent ecosystem that we talk about, right. and and play a role. How do you view that?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, so I think that um, there actually be more opportunities for that, and maybe a more remote workforce too. So I think that the, the there will be an increase in people hiring people who aren't working in the company every day. So things like Upwork and Fiverr, where you're going to find certain skills. And I think that that could see an increase as people are working from home um, and that you maybe can hire less employees and get things done with contractor basis. But in terms of like just the, the age gap, this is something that is uh, that I think about a lot, right? So if you think about it in the ideal sense, right? So me giving direction and how the company should go and, and should move and, and that should be the ideal. But at the same time, that's hard in practice when I'm 21 and hiring someone who's 40 or 50. Right. And coming from other corporate cultures that maybe aren't as fun and a little more snobby than, than what we try to create and how we try to try to act. So um that's something we're working through. Like we just added someone full-time to our team. That's 30. So not a, not a huge difference, but definitely difference. And then they've worked in large companies before. And, um, I think that I still would put those individuals through the same framework that I'd put anyone else, right? Like age shouldn't define morals or, or um, basically what you believe to your core, right? But it will define your diversity of thought and your experience, right? So I I think people that provide value on thought or things that we, we don't think about are valuable and and experiences is is included in that, right? So you're going to bring the more experience you have, the more you've probably thought about a subject that's valuable, thought for us. But at the same time, we can't be disoriented on morals and and things that you care about and the way that we treat people, the way that we act, the way that we trace our mission. So I think that just because of an age gap, there might be some dynamics and ways that we manage, but at the same time, it's still the same hiring framework as we always have. Mm,
1: Okay. Very interesting.
2: Yeah,
1: So a lot of people are working virtually now that uh, yes. have not had any exposure to that before. You grew up with technology. So I would assume that working from home is no big deal for you. But as a CEO, you know, you have to, you're, you're delegating, you're starting to delegate to other people. And it's not just the three of you anymore. There are more people involved yep. and you have to empower people. So now trust starts to become Absolutely. an issue. yeah. So do you... I'm not going to ask you if you trust your people. Of course you do. But how do you how do you feel about that now that perhaps your workforce is going to be working from home and you've got these new people and you have to trust them? What are your thoughts around that?
2: Yeah, I think trust is vital to build relationships. And I'll talk about it in a little background too. I think that um, this is maybe has some parallels to what we talked about with bringing some of the things from football or sports into the corporate world. And I, I think that um, one thing about sports is that this idea of shared hardship, right? And that um, when you've gone through something that's really hard, like practices, or you're going through sprints, or a really tough defeat, or something like that, those type of experiences um, build trust, they, they build um, camaraderie. And I think that just as though, in the same sense that you have to build in preparation, I think that you you need to build in that same type of not not hardship, but that same type of c- scenarios where people are brought together, right? And um, while it is tougher to do in a ro- remote c- scenario, I think that that's something that we try to do on, on a daily basis. Um, so we we push people extremely hard, right? But at the same time, we pride ourselves on communication, and we say like, you got to tell me when this is this is too much or too little or whatever. Communication is extremely key in these remote settings. But pushing people to where we're working towards and and are passionate about the same mission, and and it's hard at times, you can confide in us, right? And I think that I I try to, in the best way I can, bring that experience that I learned in athletics where it was like this shared hardship and that we're all going through something hard. And by that, we understand the troubles and that everyone's best interest is in mind. Is something that we try to replicate every day in, in this remote workforce that we have now. So, yeah.
1: Let's talk about brand. Let's talk about personal brand. Mm. What makes you, you? If somebody was to describe you in the hallway, maybe somebody that works for you, works with you, hangs out with you every day, how would they describe you?
2: Yeah, I think, um, well, I'd hope they'd describe me as optimistic. I think that that's something that um, is just naturally in me, and I've I've done a lot to make sure that that stays in me. So I think optimistic is, is one thing that you'd uh, describe me as. I think the other thing is energetic and passionate, maybe to a fault sometimes. And I think that um, when I get really passionate about a subject, I get really excited about a subject, it's it's hard to slow my roll on that. But I think that probably the two things that define me most maybe are optimism and, and passion. Mm.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, in the short time I've known you, I'd probably agree <laughs> with that too. <laughs> so when you have constraints in your thinking, a barrier. Yeah. In your head, whether it's, you know, you're, you're training and you're mm. running and, 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 you know, that your mind is telling you, okay, you know, this is, you're, d- you're done. You're right. This is enough. Stop, mm. stop, stop, stop. Whether it's, whether it's practice for sports or whether it's in business where somebody puts an obstacle in front of you and, and, and it's a constraint in your, in your thinking and, and it's a barrier. How do you overcome those barriers that may come up in your mind? Because, you know, our minds, we're programmed to stay safe, right? Our our minds program us to stay safe. We're not programmed to take risk. Yeah. So how do you talk yourself through? How do you talk to yourself in your head?
2: Yeah, I think um, I'm naturally prone to taking risk, which I think is a plus, uh, which is exciting for me because, like I said, with football, seeing what that looked like when I took my really first big risk, was something that was definitely enlightening for me, and I was able to take it again. But um, I do do a couple things to program this into me, and I think that one person that's um, definitely influenced me, maybe to an extreme extent at times, is David Goggins, who's a former Navy SEAL. And um, I read his book "Can't Hurt Me," and that was something that was impactful in my life. And he talked about um, how we can really control our thoughts and our mind and the way that we we go about things, and um I don't do this but one thing that he did was when he was running a mile and he would have that that voice in the back of his head say you know you got to stop you got to stop it would be 2 miles then it was supposed to be a mile but then it'd be 2 miles and just trying to train himself on this idea that like that's just a thought and that you need to you need to force that out of your brain so I think that that was something that was very much me in my football years when I was in athletics I think that if if I didn't want to run five sprints I would go out and run 10 and it was something like You know, I just need to program myself that, and continue to show myself each day that, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't think I can do this, but I actually have double that in me. And each day that that's only a thought and that's not reality in the physical, it's just in the mental. So I think that it was very much, you talked about obstacles in my football days, it was very much through that obstacle head on. Uh, And I think that I still have a certain sense of that. But I think that now with more physical barriers that exist in business, i I've molded that approach to try to go around obstacles to a certain extent. I still think I I dive into things and and I'm prone to taking risks. But at the same time, I I try to, especially because there's there's just age barriers that exist too, that I I can't control to a certain extent. And I, I think that when I'm trying to change the way police interact with systems or workflow and something that they've used for 50 plus years now, who is this 21 year old coming to me, telling me, changing my my systems that I've used for 50 years, even if it's better for them, right? So maybe that's not one that I should just go head on through. That's not an obstacle, right? Because I don't think that bashing through that that obstacle would be in the best interest of me or the the police, right? I don't think they'd like it.
1: Very wise, very wise. (laughs) Yeah, I
2: thought that went through, (laughs) right? So um, they're a little bit different case. And I think that um, that's been a slow, high touch point problem that I've had to slowly over time, show them this is, it won't change any of your workflow. It'll give you more information. And by the way, we give it to you for free. And, you know, I've convinced this guy who was former head of police chief of Chicago, that this is a good thing. And like slowly taking them through that obstacle, that physical barrier uh, that existed. So I think that my natural inclination is to jump in something headfirst, but at the same time, over time, some of those physical barriers that exist, I've started to work around them.
1: Tell us what uh, what's a typical day look like oh. for you uh, with a lot of the other leaders and guests that I've had on the show. People are interested in how they particularly how they start their day. Yeah. That's really important. So tell us about
2: that. I'm really interested in the subject, too. So I'll have to watch all your podcasts tonight to make sure I get that info, because I think that starting your day is so actually, I think that both sides of your day are so important, how you end it and how you start it. I think that you need to bookmark your day just as much as you need to start it well. Uh, This is how I start my day. I wake up at 4.45. Uh, That's something that I've gotten the habit of doing. I'll putter for a little bit, maybe 20, 30 minutes, and then I'll go into a workout. And just for today, that workout was, I hate running, so I made sure that I ran and ran a couple miles and then went to a pool that we have and did some, some pool workout. There was low stress on because I was a little sore from the last day, do my workout. Then I don't eat until 2 p.m. each day, so I do intermittent fasting. Yeah, no, I know. It's crazy. I can tell by your face.
1: What? You don't eat until 2 o'clock? Oh, my gosh. I would be falling (laughs) apart on the floor. I would be climbing the walls. I would be tearing (laughs) people's eyes out if I didn't eat uh, until 2 o'clock.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's much harder some days than it is other days, but um, I've gotten to the habit of it. It's actually boosted my energy to a certain extent. I've, I've tried to, um, this is something that is, again, a parallel to football. I've tried to have 10 to 20 minutes before I start my day where I'm reflective and I'm either writing things down or I'm thinking about what I have coming up or what I had yesterday and trying to take some of those lessons and abstract things from them and use them in the day. And then also, right when I'm done with that, I read my goals that I have for not only day, but for the year and and I try to recap them every year what my goals are. So I do something reflective. And then throughout my day, I'll normally have a couple meetings. So we normally have team meetings right in the morning just to get everyone on the same page. We'll meet really quickly. We'll talk about the different areas. Everyone will give progress updates in our remote setting. We'll we use some softwares called Asana or Notion where we push out tasks and delegate things that way. So people get started on the day. And then depending on the day, there's a, a few calls that are scheduled in. It could be a fundraising call. It could be a call with, with a school. Uh, I like to talk to schools that have already said yes and get their feedback on how we can get better, how we can make this process uh, more simple, how we can communicate better. And then I always try to schedule in at least once a week a call with one of the mentors that I've acquired over this time and, and people that have some of that experience who have done it before and see where I'm going wrong, where I'm going right, and try to iterate off of those things. Another thing I I do that's uh, obsessive, I think, and I'm obsessive over a lot of things that I think are important. One thing I do is everything I'm doing, I take a lot of notes on it. And I try to, the optimal word here is try. I try to abstract a lesson from those notes, whatever that meeting is. And then I have a, a, a lessons book that I write these lessons in. And I try to never learn a lesson twice. I mean, I fail all the time. That's something that, a lot of my coaches talked about in football was that like the best players are people that learn something once and then don't have that same thing that they have to learn again. So I try to bring that over and, and take those lessons. And I have a huge book of lessons now that I, I've learned many times. That that's a goal of mine is to try not to learn a lesson twice.
1: I still not over the fact that you don't eat anything until two o'clock.
2: I mean, I eat a lot from two to eight. Let, let me tell you. I'm I'm like two hundred and thirty pounds. So it's not like I'm not eating. I'm definitely eating. It's just the time. And, and I feel better when I, when I fast over time. And I found it for me that it works. But I don't think it works for everyone. But I started it and I felt better energy levels. I felt more refreshed. And, and it's been good for me.
1: Who do you look up to in the business world as a CEO that you admire and respect for the, the way that they operate? Uh, I don't think there's ever one person. You know, I yeah. think during somebody's career, there's always something that you like about one person and something that resonates, you know, with another person. Uh, but maybe are there one or two that uh, you keep in your sights right now that you sort of like the way that they operate? Who would they be? Yeah,
2: this is, this is, um, there's a lot of people that I would like to say right now, but one in particular that I like, one thing that they do is Jeff Weiner from LinkedIn. He's a CEO that preaches compassionate leadership. It's something that I've over time learned to love. I was, the first time I interacted with him was through a YouTube video where I watched an interview with him and he talked about compassionate leadership. And it's the first time I had, I had heard the term compassionate leadership. And I knew that compassion in leadership was important, but this set term of compassionate leadership, that was my first interaction with it. And it's something that I really, really liked. And I thought that was really important, especially the way that he described it just to talk about one of the stories that he brought up that I thought was really great, was he talked about compassionate leadership in firing someone. And it seems like an oxymoron, right? And But he was he described the situation where, in that scenario where you have to let someone go, they're not doing the best thing for the company, but at the same time, they're not doing the best thing for themselves. Like that person has capability. If You wouldn't have hired them if they didn't have capability to do something great, right? Within that realm or whatever it is. And the most compassionate thing is to either find a role within the company that makes sense for them to be that great person that you saw in them, or let them grow or blossom in another company. It's something that I liked a lot was this idea of compassionate leadership, even when really hard decisions are faced. And that's something that I try to pull from today. So Jeff, shout out to you.
1: (laughs) That's great. Who else?
2: There's so many, Jim.
1: I know. Come on. I'm going to force you to pick another one. Oh, Oh
2: my goodness. Okay, so this this is like a, a common one that a lot of people look up to, but I like Elon Musk to a certain extent. I think that what Elon has been able to do, I think that he epitomizes two things that I resonate with, and you've probably heard from this podcast is the first one is risk, right? So right after PayPal, he took the profits from that and put it into the, the companies that he thought were gonna change the world, right? That he was just passionate about. And and then that brings in the second one is just his passion. And you see it more now with Elon's, he's now selling his possessions and, and doing the, is that very passion driven. He, he thinks about how can I change the world? Where are the categories where I can change the world? And I think that I, I know that I'm not launching rockets <laughs> into into space or I'm not driving. I mean, I'm not making the next electric car, but at the same time, I think very much what we're doing could impact a lot of people in a good way. And that's something that, I um I try to keep with me is this idea of like what what is going to move the needle the most in the in a good direction right and I try to frame decisions off of that.
1: Do you feel the need to fit a certain corporate mold as a CEO? You know, do you do you have this this vision? Whether it's through uh, people you've you've talked to, movies, even you know, just this idea of a corporate CEO that you think you have to conform to or uh, tell me about that? How do you think about that?
2: You would think that my age would cause me to try to replicate those type of models. But I think that I'm less susceptible to that than the CEOs of today. I think that when you're in a company for a long time and then you ultimately become a CEO, you're going to be very much the CEO of the past. Like You're going to bring in those same things that he did. Or she did, or whoever it is. And
1: you're going to be a product of that environment, essentially, right?
2: Exactly, right. And I think that I'm pretty far removed from that. <laughs> so far removed that I've never been in it. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, like, so never having that type of influence, I think that actually is a strength to a certain extent. Now, I think that I don't want to you know, discredit the role of experience in this. I've made a lot of mistakes as a first-time founder that I wouldn't have made if I would have seen it done firsthand. For sure, and I recognize, it. and I'll make a bunch more. But at the same time, I think that I won't be a carbon copy of anyone when I'm leading, and that because of that, I haven't, I haven't just seen what he did forever, and I'm not going to try to be them. Uh, I think because of that, I can be me. I think being farther removed is actually a strength to a certain extent.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting that you don't really, you don't really know what a toxic corporate culture is. Uh, other than maybe something you've read about it, you've never experienced no, it. So you've gone straight in to this position as CEO because you are a startup, which is a wonderful, refreshing yeah, place cool. to be. So you, you can drive this culture yeah. the way that you want it to be. Help our audience who are perhaps a little older than the Gen Z age group. And for for those leaders who are now looking to attract Gen Z, the Gen Z generation into their companies. What advice would you give them?
2: That's a great question, Jim. I I think it ultimately, like anything, when you're recruiting, it depends on the person, right? So Gen Z lumped together is not the greatest way. But I think that this is going to be cliche, but I think that being yourself is something that's going to resonate with with someone in Gen Z. Um, And I think that there are times where I've gone into a meeting and said, hey, guys, I totally messed up yesterday. Like I did terrible. Like there was a meeting in which I had, I didn't plan before and this, this didn't go right. And that what you would think the the intuitive thing would be is that people would be like, Oh man, what are you doing? Like this is our CEO. But no, I think people resonate with that because at the same time um, they've made those same mistakes multiple times too. And then that's just not Gen Z either. That's our 30 year old who we just hired. He makes a bunch of mistakes. And I think that us founders, when I say us and, and me, especially when we acknowledge those type of things it opens up that type of acknowledgement from other people at our team meetings and in other places it would have been closed communication that never got through so i think that a certain sense of just being you and not trying to fit some sort of stereotype or mold or trying to be like uh you know suit and tie is something that will definitely resonate with gen z you know and i think that like you will have to resonate with Gen Z out of necessity. We're, we're, yeah, we're becoming um, pretty important, I think, in these next couple of years. So I, I think that that's one tip of advice that, is, that has worked for me with my peers.
1: So you mean to tell me you're not excited about working in a company where you're thrown in a cube and you're told what to do and you're given a uh, your job description and you better not make a mistake and if you do you need to bury yeah. it or hide it and you need <laughs> to protect yourself and your siloed exactly. function at all costs? You mean that doesn't as enticing excite you? As that
2: sounds, yeah. I think I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that
2: doesn't. Uh, no, I would much rather um, not do that. Yeah.
1: How important is mission and purpose? We've read that uh, millennials. Seventy-seven percent of millennials want to work for a company that has a mission and purpose that resonates with them. How important is that to you? Yeah,
2: I think it's everything, and I think that that's—I didn't know that statistic, but I definitely believe it. Um, I think that that's that's something. That there's a, a reason that you get up in the morning, and I I tend to hope and believe that it's not money. And if it is, then I think it should change. Um, so I, I get up in the morning because I'm—I think that the problem that we're solving. Fundamentally, should be solved, and if someone else were to solve it tomorrow, I'd be better than I did. I'd be happy about it because I'm chasing the solution to that problem, which I think hasn't been solved in 50 years because there's certain barriers in place, and I think that we've solved those barriers. That gets me up. I wouldn't get up at 4:45 in the morning because I was going to get eighty thousand this year. (laughs) That wouldn't that wouldn't wake me up. Um, So I, I think that is everything, and I think that my generation has has noticed that that it's a it's a rat race right is that working for money each day just because you have to is not something that you necessarily have to do and, and i think that that sense of authenticity and that people in my generation especially resonate with that yeah
1: when i started my career i wouldn't have even thought about asking the question what was the mission or purpose of the company interesting it wouldn't have even It wouldn't have even, it wasn't even a thought process. It wasn't even in my head. When I started my career in the eighties, it was about, I want to get in, I want to get a job and I want to work my way up that career ladder as quickly as possible. I want title, I want status, and I want money. I couldn't care less about what the company did or what they made. Quite frankly, now that's changed over the years and I would say in the last, 10 years, it's, you know, I've, I've changed my thinking on that, but it's funny how different generations, you know, see things coming into the workforce, but my generation has to recognize this and has to adapt and to go back full circle to where we started this discussion has to spend more time visualizing success communicating vision, communicating mission and and vision in a very deep and meaningful way that people can get connected to. And that vision is not making two million widgets and be the world-class manufacturer of X, Y, and Z and create shareholder value. You know, that is not something that's going to resonate with Gen Z.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. That that's not exclusive to mission-driven companies. And when I say mission-driven companies, I'm talking about we're trying to save lives, right? Like that's our ultimate purpose. I, I think that every company should be looking at that the same way. I think it was it was Sony uh, back in 19 whatever when they when they said that our mission was to make Japan were uh, known for quality, right? And it it wasn't. It could have very much been that type of company. Could have very much been sell this amount of product, but it was a very different mission statement, and it was very. I wanted to change the way Japan was was viewed. And I think that any company can can look at a mission statement in that framework, and that, that would get Gen Z excited, is that we're going to actually do something that has an impact on the world instead of have a really high um, bottom line.
1: Yeah, I uh, spoke to a company the other day, and they are a distributor of fireplaces. They're an internet-based company. and their mission in life is to create amazing experiences around fire. And I thought, wow, that's really good because that's a much more emotional connection. Yeah. Because that's hard, right? How do you create a, a vision and mission around selling fireplaces? Right. But they they did. They want to create amazing experiences for people around fire. And I was I was totally impressed with that. Because that's what we're talking about. You're talking about making making the production of a widget that could be plain and boring, making it meaningful and relatable and an emotional connection to people. That's what creates yeah, passion definitely. and drive.
2: Yeah, no, I believe that to my core.
1: Yeah. And you, you most definitely have that passion and drive. you got that <laughs> I try. Thank you.
2: Like I said, sometimes to <laughs> a fault, but it, it's me. So I'm going to own it.
1: So you're a successful 21-year-old. Yeah. I have a daughter who's almost 18 years of age. What advice would you give to young people coming up behind you? So people who are younger than you, your age and younger, what advice would you give to them?
2: I think that to be a great leader, you have to understand yourself. And I think that that's, that's important advice at this stage, because like me 21, I'm really trying to find myself. And it's really hard to be a leader when you don't even know yourself yet. One thing that I, focused a lot on and I still with adding in reflectiveness into my day and then also writing down lessons each day. I, I'm really searching who am I? I've become a much better leader by understanding a little bit more about myself. So if I was 18 right now, I would put a lot of time and effort into understanding what's my passion? What what am I excited about? What's going to get me up in the morning? And those are the things I would put a lot of effort into to be a great leader. You have to understand yourself at this age, like just being 21, I'm still figuring that out. I think I would put significant time and effort into that. It's something that'll go unthought about if you don't, is just understanding who you are, what what gets me going, why am I excited about this and what what pulls my excitement levers. And once you have that, it's much easier to one, go out and, and just take risk on those things. Cause those are the things that you you're excited about. Like you're gonna have no regret chasing a passion. Even if you fail, you're going to have no regret chasing a passion, but to chase that passion and to take significant risks, you got to understand what that passion is. And the other thing is, is that I think that it makes you a better leader because people gravitate towards someone truly chasing their passion. So um, I think it's predicated on that. Understanding what that passion is, chasing it because you know that that's ultimately what you want to do, and then convincing others to chase it alongside you. So yeah, maybe that's the advice is understand what your passion is, your why.
1: That is great advice. Michael, thank you very much for giving us a peek inside the mind of a 21-year-old CEO. It's been fascinating.
2: Yes, thank you so much.
1: And I have to tell you that from what I know of you, you are very much an authentic leader. Don't ever change. You have a strong value system. I think your gut is right on. I absolutely love your ability to capture vision and to take that from the football field into business. Mm -hmm. I would expect to see you as a tremendously successful CEO. There's no doubt in my mind that it will happen. And thank you.
2: Thank you so much. I'm really grateful for the opportunity.
0: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you found something of value that will help you on your quest for your Gravitas, then please share with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. Visit us at GravitasDetroit.com to find out more.